Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up, but give it a rest. You're gonna die one. The first thing I noticed in prison is how much it looked like school. By that I mean the architecture, the long hallways with nowhere to hide, the the sight lines very clear so that only a few people could control lots of other people. That was the first thing I saw. It's like this place looks like fucking school, man. And it turned out later, I looked into it a little bit, and it turns out that a lot of the same architectural uh, companies that design schools also design prisons. They're places of control. Efficient control. So there you go. The first thing that, uh, that Russ and I had to figure out, the first conversation we had was, are we going to lie about what got us in here? Right? Because we figured it's Memorial Day weekend, it's Thursday night, we've got... Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, we're going to go to court Tuesday morning. So we've got four days to deal with, and more importantly, four nights. And uh, what are we going to do? Are we going to tell everybody that we killed somebody? Are we going to refuse to answer? What are we going to say? Because, you know, the first thought was like, well, maybe if we pretend we're real badass motherfuckers, these guys will leave us alone. I don't remember if we knew who the other inmates were. I think maybe the the intake warden or whatever his his official title is, but the guy who who booked us and all that, um, I think he might have told us, like, hey, this is a medium security prison, so watch your fucking ass. Because, I mean, there were rapists and murderers and all sorts of, uh, uh, you know, hardcore dudes in there. As I think I said in the last episode, in this time in Alaska, there were no uh, jails. So there, if you got pulled over for drunk driving or something, they held you here until um, your trial date. So this, you know, you were in with the guys who were already sentenced, which is a pretty unusual situation, I think. Um, anyway they had some other guys who were in there sort of like us, you know, who weren't, hadn't been sensed. I, th- I think they called them the weekend warriors. These were guys who like had, you know, sentenced to 20 days, but they could sort of do it on weekend so they could keep their job in the meantime. So they'd come in and serve a couple of days on the weekend and then go home during the week. Strange, strange. Anyway, so we talked about this, are we going to lie? And I have always had um, an impulse which I think got very much strengthened uh, by this experience. And the impulse is when you're in big trouble, no, don't bullshit. Be honest. Tell the truth. And rely on the world to send someone who's going to help you. Because if you're lying, anyone who might help you is going to just let you, let you take the fall. Because... Uh, you know, I think sincerity is what brings out people's uh, protective in, impulses. And and remember, we're two 19-year-old white boys wearing shorts with no underwear in prison. So 
We needed all the help we could get. Anyway, so we talked about this, and and I was adamant that I was not going to lie. You can't lie. Come on, man. So we didn't. And I'm really glad we didn't because I remember, I think we were in the library, and um, somebody's like, what the hell, man? What? I went, first of all, I should try to keep this in more or less chronological order. I remember walking from the intake area. And yeah, we they didn't give us prison clothes, at least not initially, because I remember walking down this long hallway where there were uh, cells, and all these dudes were in the cells, and they're walking us down. I think probably to the gym, or maybe to give us clothes. I don't, I don't know what it was, but I remember we were walking down this long hallway, and everybody was laughing, and hey, look at these two. What happened to you guys? They, you guys got arrested on the beach. Of course, there's no fucking beach in Fairbanks, right? You're a thousand miles from the nearest ocean. Laughing. Little white boys. White meat. I remember somebody yelling white meat. Oh, that was nice. Anyway, um, I think they must have given us prison garb because we had boots with laces and stuff, and you can't have that in prison. So I, I guess that was walking from the in the intake area down to where they gave us orange shoot, jumpsuits and shit to wear. But uh, I remember being in the library at some point that weekend and um, some some guys asking, you know, what we were in for. And when I told them the truth, a fucking Snickers bar, they laughed so hard. Everybody was crying. They were laughing so hard. And I remember this one big black dude, exactly the kind of guy that I was terrified was going to be raping me in prison, put his arm around my shoulders and like hugged me and said, don't you worry, little man, we're going to take care of you. You're going to be just fine. And he meant it. He wasn't fucking with me. And now this is the thing. I had, what happened in prison was the opposite in almost every respect of what I thought was going to happen. I was afraid. I thought I would be a victim. In fact, what happened was that I found kind people in there. By the way, there aren't many black people in Alaska, but probably half the people in that prison were black. Just goes to show you how fucked up this country still is in terms of its its criminal sentencing laws. I mean, you, you don't have to Google very far to find it's, you know, less than 20% of the people in this country are black, less than 20% of the people who use drugs are black, but more than 50% of the people who are in prison for using drugs are black. So what the hell's going on? It's that the laws are racist. The country is racist, structurally racist. There's no getting around that. The people are going to prison for 10 or 20 times the amount of uh, of time for doing the same amount of crack versus powder cocaine. I mean, what's the fucking difference? The difference is that black people use crack, white people use powder. That's the difference. There's no chemical difference. So anyway, I don't want to get off on a rant about that, but but you can see pretty quickly uh, how the prison population skews black in a way that the general population doesn't. But those guys were just as cool as anyone. There was none of this. I mean, you know, maybe because we were only there there a few days, but um, 
and maybe because it's a much smaller uh, facility and maybe because it was Alaska, but it wasn't this kind of scene like, you know, the skinheads and, you know, the, everybody segregated and all that. I, I remember it being pretty, pretty mixed up uh, in terms of racial groupings. Um, now, here's another thing that was very surprising. Alaska has is rolling in money from oil because they're they've got all the all this oil on the north shore and um i don't know if it's still like this but in the 80s when we were there if you you know some states have income tax state income tax some states don't like washington state has no state income tax um but in alaska not only do they not have a state income tax if you are a resident of alaska the state gave you money every year. It was a couple thousand dollars per adult. Um, so you get paid just to live there, essentially, um, because they're they're sharing out some of this oil money. Now, the other thing, because there's all this money there, the prisons were uh, luxurious. There's no other word for it. I mean, every meal was all you could eat. There was a salad bar. There were whole wheat rolls and white rolls. Wednesday was prime rib day where the police could pay a dollar and eat with the prisoners. So uh, it was pretty great. After 10 days in the woods eating, you know, uh, nuts and whatever the hell, dried fruit and shit that I had in my backpack, it was pretty sweet to be in that prison for a while because the food was fantastic. The, The catch was you only had 20 minutes to eat. So there's a lot of food there. You can eat as much as you want, but 20 minutes. So that kept the conversations pretty uh, minimalistic there at the tables. I do remember one where Russ and I were uh, sitting at this table, and there was a guy across the table who looked like uh, Charles Bronson. A lot of people listening to this are too young to know who Charles Bronson was, but if you Google him, you'll see what I'm talking about. Hard-ass-looking dude, tattoos, um, you know, wiry, muscular uh, mustache. He's chowing down, just shoving this food into his face. And he looks up at us and he says, this is the best fucking prison I've ever been in. <laughs> yeah, me too, man. His story, if I remember correctly, was that he was in like New Mexico or Arizona and he came home and found his wife or girlfriend fucking some guy. And he took a lead pipe and beat the guy. And he didn't know at that point if he'd killed him. Um, but he beat him so bad. And then he got in his car and started driving to Alaska. Because he knew he was going to get picked up. And he had heard that the prisons in Alaska were great. So his ambition was to get arrested to get to Alaska before he got arrested, so he'd spend some time in Alaskan prisons. And he was successful, so good for him. Um, yeah, yeah, that was a pretty unusual or, or at least uh, unexpected quality of that prison, the, the great food. So we did our time over that long weekend. I don't really remember much else about it other than the general feeling of... Um, then nobody was messing with us. Nobody was trying to hurt us. And several people said, don't worry, you guys are going to be okay. I mean, it, it's like, and these guys are in for 10, 15, 20 years, right? And they're 
sympathizing with a couple of college boys who are in for the weekend, who they could probably see the fear in our eyes, right? It it touched me. Um, you know, it touched me the way. You know, it's like you're you're walking through the oncology ward of the hospital, and uh, you know you trip and 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 bang your knee on the floor, and there's someone there who's who's you know in their last weeks of life who says, "Hey, are you okay?" and they, and they try to help you up. That was the feeling of it. Is like, how do you in your situation, which is so fucked, find? the compassion and the generosity of spirit to worry about me in my very, very minor problems compared to yours. It was very touching. And it sort of exemplifies something that I learned uh, over the course of that whole first trip to Alaska that year um, that changed the course of my life. And, you know, I, I wouldn't say... I had an epiphany in prison or I had an epiphany any particular day. Uh, but I did, over the course of the summer, at some point, I had an insight where I looked at myself. And here I am. I'm a guy who was like, you know, won the award for the best student in my little liberal arts college. I was hanging out with professors. They all thought I was brilliant. I, you know, went to Alaska with 20 books in my backpack, Oscar Wilde and D.H. Lawrence and Joseph Conrad and Herman Melville and Walt Whitman and all this shit. Great books, by the way. I, I, I'm not poo-pooing the books at all. But what kind of person was I? I was arrogant. I was pedantic. I was uh, inflated. And what happened over the course of that summer is that I met people who were so smart but had no idea who D.H. Lawrence was or Oscar Wilde and had no interest. But these were people who picked me up hitchhiking and took me home to their house and let me sleep on their sofa for a couple of days and trusted me around their kids and their wife and fed me and, you know, let me use their shower and all that because they sympathized with some guys hitchhiking and they thought it was cool and they wanted to support me. And then they, you know, went out of their way to drive me an hour out to the highway again and wish me luck and pack me some sandwiches to take with me. These are people whose names I don't remember. I don't even remember their faces, but I remember their spirit. I remember that they gave a shit and they helped me. And when I thought about those people, people who had good families, good relationships, their kids loved them, they had cool dogs, they'd built their own houses, they knew how to fix their car. These people, if they had stumbled into my world back at Hobart, and my friends, my fancy PhD professor genius friends, they would have been shunned. They would have been laughed at. Ignorant. Right? My friends, with their fucked up, miserable, sad lives, their lonely, arrogant lives, spent sitting alone listening to Mahler or reading books that they loved. And those were real loves, but their relationships were complicated and fucked up and twisted, and, and they weren't happy people. And they would have scoffed at these other people. 
And that's the same feeling I got in, in prison. Like, wow, I'm the lucky one and they're helping me. So who's superior here, really? And more importantly, as a 19-year-old kid, what life do I want to have? Now, I'm not saying I want to have a life in prison. I don't want to be a prisoner. I don't want to kill somebody and do 20 years for it. But what kind of person do I want to be? And this is a really important thing that happened to me that summer because I look back at my friends in college. I looked at the course I was on. I was supposed to be going to Oxford. I mean, I remember talking about that in prison. I remember, you know, sitting there and and somebody saying, so what are you doing and what's going on? And I'm like, yeah, I'm in college. You know, I'm going to be going to Oxford and do my PhD there. And I can remember the look in this guy's face like he didn't know what Oxford was, right? He probably didn't, I don't know if he knew what a PhD was, but I remember him sort of nodding like, okay, that's cool, man. You know, that's your, that's your trip, whatever. And I could hear in my voice that I was separating myself. I was, what I, the subtext of what I was saying to that guy is, I'm not like you. I'm better than you. My life's going somewhere. You're stuck here. That's what I was saying to this dude who was trying to make me comfortable, who was trying to protect me and make me feel a little bit safer because he knew I was afraid. And I, I thank God I was just aware enough to hear my voice and hear what a dick I was. And then I was on the road to becoming even worse. And that was a turning point in my life. It really was because that's when I said, I'm not going to Oxford. I'm not going to get a PhD. I'm not going to do any of this shit until I'm 30. I was 19, maybe 20 at this time. Uh, No, I was 83, so I was 21, actually. I just turned 21 that spring, so I was 21 years old. And I said, I am, this is it. This is my plan. I'm not going to go to graduate school I'm not, until I'm 30. I'm not going to commit to anything. I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to have a career. I'm not going to choose any path, any definite path until I'm 30. And from now until I'm 30, I'm just going to float around the world and explore. I remember there was an image from, a, I think it was a Robert Frost essay where he talks about um, thinking and experiencing as like, for him, it was like walking through a field and some burrs would stick to his pants and his socks. And those were the things that's opening yourself to experience. You go through life and just see what sticks to you, you know, see what comes your way, just float and see what currents pick you up and pull you in which directions. So I decided that's what I was going to do with my life. Now, I'm not saying, you know, that happened in prison. I'm saying it happened in this, this summer, that magical, crazy, pivotal summer in my life. So anyway, uh, Tuesday finally came around and we uh, we went to court. Now, the court was very interesting. Of course, we got the handcuffs again uh, back in the, the backseat of a police car, take us to court. There are a bunch of other guys, you know, in cuffs in front of us. They, you know, it's sort of a, you know, factory kind of thing. Okay, who's next? And then so we go up and 
Now, here's learned a lot of interesting things. I remember it was Magistrate Hessen was the guy's name. And uh, he was like an old, kind, old man kind of. And he looked at us and he could see right away, like, hey, these are white kids. These are, you know, college kids up here. He, he, he knew what we were. He'd seen it before, I'm sure. Now, the first thing that was interesting is the assistant DA was a young woman, you know, probably one of her first cases. She, she was sort of nervous. You could hear in her voice. So she starts saying, you know, describing what we had done. And she embellished it and lied to make it seem much worse than it was. So she said, for example, you know, these two guys had um, $127 worth of stuff in the shopping cart, and they didn't even have the money to pay for it. They couldn't have possibly paid for it. And, and I remember interrupting, saying, yeah, I've got $2,000 in my money belt. And the, the magistrate said, hey, you'll get your chance. Be quiet. You know? And like the idea that we couldn't even have paid for that stuff if we'd wanted to, just to make it seem worse, just to make us seem, you know, the crime premeditated or I don't know what the fuck her point was. But it it really surprised me and made me see how adversarial it is. It's not about getting to the truth. It's about winning. So uh, in the end, he we didn't i don't think we had a court court appointed attorney or anything i think we just you know spoke for ourselves and um so he listened and and then he said okay i sentence you to time served plus 20 hours of community service and uh i'm gonna uh put you in touch with my friend who is the um scout leader boy scout leader of the council of the midnight sun and you'll do your 20 hours of community service with him. <laughs> and if you don't get in trouble again for a year, this will be stricken from your record. Uh, you, you boys are in college. You don't need this kind of stuff following you around. So stay out of trouble for a year, and this will all disappear, and that'll be it. So uh, he let us out. We, we left. We called this guy who was the, you know, the head of the Council of the Midnight Sun Boy Scout Troop. And, uh, yeah, we went and, and, uh, he, he was just, you know, he was, he didn't know what to do with us. He said, okay, you guys go downstairs and we've got the storage room and, you know, you tidy it up and put stuff on shelves and whatever. So that was all this Boy Scout stuff. Uh, I remember there were pot holders and BB guns and I don't know, whatever, Boy Scout crap. And I had been kicked out of Boy Scouts as a kid. I don't remember why, but I was, a Cub Scout, that seemed to go well. I don't think I even made it to Boy Scouts. I think I was a Weeblow. <sighs> Strange name for the intermediate stage of scouting. But <clears throat> anyway, I was briefly a Weeblow. Or maybe that makes me an Eyeblow. I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, that didn't last long. I never even got a merit badge. But cleaning out the basement of the Min Council of the Midnight Sun, we managed to steal a whole bunch of merit badges, which we promptly sewed onto our backpacks as soon as we got out of Fairbanks. So there was that. Um, and then I, I, I remember the day I left the prison, I don't remember where Russ went. Like he, I don't remember what the situation was, but for some reason I was alone and I was walking from the prison back to this um, campsite where I was staying. And uh, I was walking down this highway. And um, 
I, I walked past this place called Alaska Land. And it was like a, an Alaskan theme park. And um, I saw they had, like, there was an a old-time saloon. And they had, like, some old, these old riverboats that went up the Yukon and whatever. And in the saloon, it said they had can-can girls. So I, I really wanted a beer. They didn't have any beer in prison. So I went to um, this uh, this bar and walked into the bar to get a beer. And there was a guy sitting at the bar, nobody else in the place. He was sitting there alone. And he looked up and said hi. And I said hello. And he was reading Alaskan poetry, which I thought was interesting. I didn't know there was Alaskan poetry. Anyway, he and I started chatting. His name was John. And... Uh, and John and I are still friends today. I'm very happy to say he's he's a wonderful guy. And I won't say anything more about him because maybe his kids will hear this at some point. <laughs> and I think he wants to keep his reputation somewhat clean. I was thinking last night about why I did this trip and, and what motivated me to take off and take all these risks and and uh, put myself in this situation and i remember there was a a line or a passage from henry david thoreau uh his book walden which was one of my favorite books in fact i still have my dad's copy that he read in college and uh, it's a treasured book in my library um anyway he said i when people asked him why he went to live in the woods walden is about uh, if you haven't read it, it's this guy in the 1840s, I think, 30s maybe, Henry David Thoreau, who decides to go build himself a little cabin in the woods and live there by himself for a year and just sort of explore himself, explore life, try to figure out what's going on before he gets too old, right? And so he can still use these lessons. And what he what he wrote was, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life. Living is so dear. Nor did I wish to practice resignation unless it was quite necessary. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life, to live so sturdily and Spartan-like as to put to rout all that was not life, to cut a broad swath and shave close, to drive life into a corner and reduce it to its lowest terms. Now, of course, by lowest terms, he doesn't mean low as in bad or low quality or whatever. What he means is basic, to get down to the basics, right? To see that... This kind of landscape you see in Utah, which is rock. You see the geology. It's not obscured by trees and jungle and vines and all that kind of stuff. He wanted to get down to the basics. And I think there's some great value in getting down to the basics when you're young. You know, find out what's real. Because all the bullshit accumulates. It accumulates so quickly. And everything can get so tangled and confusing and... You can get lost in that stuff. Um, so I think the essential task of youth is to figure out what's real so that you can hold on to that the rest of your life and you can 
Always refer to it when things get too crazy and weird. Anyway, years later, about 10 years later, I was in San Francisco. Life had taken me all over the world, all sorts of strange adventures. And I was back in San Francisco and... uh, I was reading a Playboy magazine, and there was a section in in these magazines that's like news updates or something. And there was a little news snippet that said, a recent survey of um, prisoners in the, I think it said in the federal system, uh, had ranked the nation's prisons. And the number one prison in the United States was my alma mater. Fairbanks Correctional Center. So that made me proud. I did my time in the best possible prison. And this is a recurring theme you're going to hear in these stories as I go through them. I do something stupid. I fuck up completely. And I end up having an experience that I was terrified of in the best possible way. And so I I, I don't deserve any of this, but I do feel like I must have some sort of um, guardian spirit who's got a great sense of humor because he or she doesn't get me out of trouble. It lets me get into trouble, but then experience the trouble in a way that in the end doesn't really hurt me at all. So that's even more fortunate than avoiding the trouble in the first place, as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, uh, that was a long time ago, right? That was ninety. Uh, that was eighty-four. So what's that? Uh, Thirty years ago. I um, I've never forgotten it, obviously, and I still somewhere have my arrest paper. I saved it for years because people wouldn't believe me when I told the story. So I pull out this arrest paper, and it's got the Snickers bar right on there. Um, but. Uh, I hadn't really thought about it much. I, you know, when they ask at the airport and stuff if I've ever been convicted of a crime, of course, I said no. And even if they ask if I've ever been arrested, I say no um, because, you know, it all went away. I didn't get in trouble again for a year. So then uh, last summer I was going to Vancouver and because I wanted to spend six months in Canada, I stopped at the border and applied for a visa, even though I didn't really have to as an American. But I went in and said, look, I want to stay here six months and be able to come and go. And and they said, OK, and, you know, fill this out and whatever. And then the guy called me up to the desk and he said, uh, he said, we got a problem. I said, What's the problem? He said, you uh, lied on your application here. I said, well, no, I, I didn't lie. He said, well... Is there something you want to tell me about 1983? I don't know, 1983, what? Fairbanks? Are you kidding? That's on my record? I said, I I told him the story, a Snickers bar, the shoplifting thing, but it was wiped from my record. He said, well, no, it wasn't wiped from your record. It's still on there. It's on your FBI record, which is what's shared with uh, Canadian immigration. The fact that I was not a resident of Alaska meant that it wasn't automatically uh, clean from my record, as the magistrate had said it would be. In fact, I would have to hire a lawyer and go through all this bullshit to get it expunged from my record. 
So, and the guy said, look, I could bar you from ever entering Canada because you lied on this application. I said, you know, come on, man. I look at this, you know, this is the situation. He said, yeah, okay, I'm not going to do it. But what I'm telling you is from now on, if anyone asks you if you've ever been um, convicted of a crime, you have to say yes. I said, I didn't even think I was convicted. He said, well, you were because you were sentenced to time served. So he convicted you, but, you know, basically let you off, but with a conviction. And he said, you have to be very careful now because you've got one conviction on your record. So the whole three strikes thing, I've already got a strike. Fuck that cop, man. Short cops. Anyway, that's the story of prison. Uh, Next time, I'll uh, talk about arriving in Kenai and my one and only uh, tequila experience in my entire life that happened that summer in Kenai, Alaska, while waiting for the salmon. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time? Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say <laughs> When everyone we've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day So baby, what's a big If you want to be free, say what you want to feel, spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms, we'll dance into the ground.